Grab your Bible, uh, we're looking at Psalm 32, God speaks it to us, he works by his spirit through his word, uh, we want to understand him, we want to see him shape our lives, so let's ask him to be at work as his word is preached, let's pray. Father, we know you as the God who is at work in the world, the God who works by your spirit through your word, please do be at work in us. Um, Please do give us humble hearts before you. Uh, Please work in us uh, faith and repentance, uh, trust in you through all our days. In the Lord Jesus, amen. One of my very good friends uh, refuses to say anything is wrong. I think he's wrong, I've told him so. Um, how do you cope when the Bible says you're wrong? Uh, where does your mind go when God begins to say that that thing you did, those words that slipped out, that attitude that just won't go away, and God says, you begin to hear him say, it's wrong. It's easy to pull back. It's easy to tell ourselves it isn't that bad. It's easy to change the subject and think kinder, gentler thoughts. It's easy to take a shortcut to a clean conscience by covering up what's happened with absent-mindedness, just forgetting about it. David tried that. He found that easier isn't better. Uh, Easy is bland, it brings no joy. If God's merciful, easy brings struggle. If we're stubborn, easy will bring judgment. What's the better way? What's the experience which responds to hearing David say, verse 11, with genuine joy, with heartfelt rejoicing, with deeply felt reasons to shout for joy? Well, we'll see it as we hear David's story in verses 1 to 5. He's saying it's brilliant to be forgiven, but David wasn't forgiven when he hid his sin. But in God's kindness, God disciplined David and drove David to admit his sin and find forgiveness. It's David's story in verses 1 to 5. Then verses 6 to 10, uh, we'll hear David's prayer and teaching. David asked God to make the godly pray while they still can. Then he urges them to trust the Lord, not stubbornly resist him. Let's hear the godly sinner's story. Beginning verse 1. David says, blessed, blessed is the Bible word to describe people whose life is as good as it could possibly be. As good as our creator intended it to be. The first words in the book of Psalms celebrate the blessedness of people who hear and trust and obey their creator. Here the blessed ones are people who have not trusted, who have not obeyed, but are now forgiven. David uses three words to look at their rebellion from slightly different angles. Transgression, sin, iniquity. They build together a picture of rebellion which includes knowing what God 
knowing what God says is good, but crossing the line anyway. It's kind of a fist shaking at God. And, and rebellion involves seeing the standard and failing to live up to it. It's bending life out of shape, doing damage, gathering guilt. David talks about rebellion, but the words aren't used to say why the guilty are punished. The three words are used here to picture the width and the depth of human rebellion. Well, they sit beside words which describe complete forgiveness. Forgiven covered, not counted against. Forgiven has the idea of being carried away like the the scapegoat carried Israel's sin away into the wilderness. Covered is out of sight, no longer seen by the holy God whose, whose holy anger blazes against sin. Verse 2, the Lord does not count it against them. He puts a line through the guilt He delates it. He no longer sees them as people who deserve punishment. So David says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. They're the ones who get to enjoy life as good as it could possibly be as good as the Creator intended it to be. The people who have not trusted, who have not obeyed, but are now forgiven. See the other way David describes them in verse 2. The ones in whose spirit there is no deceit. Why does he say that? Why does he describe the wonder of being forgiven... And then comment about there being no deep down deceit. Well, because no deceit is fundamental. Because the ones who try to disguise their transgression and sin and iniquity are unforgiven. That's the deceit he's talking about here. You see, as we read on, David tried. He tried to deceive God himself. He tried to disguise his sin. Verses 3 and 4, he tells us how it went. And it didn't go well when he kept silence. His silence is contrasted with acknowledging his sin in verse 5. His silence is refusing to admit his sin to himself or to God. It's self-deception of thinking, I haven't done anything that deserves God's judgments. When he kept silence, his bones wasted away. The most solid part of him felt like it was turning to dust. All day he groaned in agony. He cried out, but he didn't cry out to God. He was silent to God. But even in that all day agony, God didn't leave him. Verse 4, all day, both day and night, God's hand was heavy on him. God's hand, the power, the might, the strength of the living and true God pressing down on David, crushing him, causing him pain, draining his strength. When he hid his sin, God gave him pain. 
God caused his misery. Far from enjoying the fullness of life as God intended, he suffered under God's heavy hand. That was when he kept silent. That was when he kept silent about his transgression and sin and iniquity. But verse 5, he uses those words again. The same ones he used in verse 1 and 2. As he talks about when he stopped his silence. He admitted his sin to God. He did not cover up his iniquity. He confessed his transgressions to the Lord. And the Lord God forgave his iniquity and sin. See, his silence didn't deceive God. His silence couldn't cover up his guilt. But when he uncovers his sin to God, God covers it. When he brings his sin to God, God takes it away. When he says, this is what you could count against me, God does not count it against him. When David stops trying to to cover up his unrighteousness, God really covered it. That's David's experience. That's David's story. He's told you about it because he wants it to be your story. So he prays and teaches. Verses 6 to 10. David prays and teaches. Verse 6, he asks God to work. Here's what he says to God. He says, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at the time when you may be found. He's asking God to work in people so that those people pray to God. Specifically, he's asking God to work in godly people. It's like the committed, loyal, faithful, steadfast ones that God would work in those who have responded to God's committed, loyal, faithful love so that they pray to him. He's going to speak directly to them uh, in in the next verse or two. But in verse 6, he's speaking to God while they listen in. David asked the Lord to do in them what the Lord has done in him. That God would make them pray while they still can. Before God can't be found. It's the same prayer that David just said he prayed. He wants to see them... uh, praying to God, admitting their, their sin, not covering their iniquity, confessing their transgressions, so that they too find forgiveness. Because then, in the rush of great waters, those great waters will not reach any godly one who prayed. The tsunami of God's judgment will not crash down on them. And as David thinks about them being delivered. He thinks about his own deliverance. Verse 7, he speaks his faith and trust and confidence in God, that when God does bring that horrendous destruction on transgression and punishment, that punishment on sin, that condemnation on iniquity, that he, God, will be David's hiding place. And not just David's. 
God will surround David with shouts of deliverance. See, he's looking to the day when he knows he's been delivered, but he's with lots of other people who know they have been delivered and saved by God. He expects God to answer his prayer. He expects many others to join him in glad thanks and joyful praise to God the Deliverer. David himself and all the other delivered ones rejoicing in God who delivered them. He expects God to answer his prayer. David speaks this prayer and praise, knowing that the, the people he's praying for are listening in. He's calling on God and honoring him, but he's saying it knowing that they are listening. Verse 8, he speaks directly to them, directly to God's people. He speaks as the king among the people he rules. He says he's going to instruct, he'll teach you the way that you should go, he'll, he'll watch you and counsel you. <laughs> he's saying, yeah, you, you need to listen to this. He speaks as king who is passionately concerned for his people. There's no take it or leave it here. This is crucially important. He says to all of us, don't be a stubborn horse or a mule who understands nothing. Don't be a mule who needs to be forced to go where it needs to go. It only goes where it's needed because of the bit between its teeth and the rope dragging its bridle. Don't be a stubborn animal that fights long and hard against its owner. He says it to all of us. He says it to you. Don't fight long and hard against the Lord God when he speaks to you and when he disciplines you. Don't resist the feeling of discomfort God's Spirit is working in you. Don't ignore the external pressure of health going wrong or or plans falling flat. Don't dismiss the feeling of distance. Don't fight long and hard against the Lord God when he speaks to you and when he disciplines you. Now, now it's right to hear this with some thought of of Job. Uh, He was blameless and upright. He feared God. He turned away from, from evil, but he suffered. We mustn't assume that every setback or sickness is God's discipline to bring the unrepentant to repentance. If there aren't obvious things that that jump to your mind, well, it may help to uh, talk to brothers and sisters around church to see if they may may be able to help you to see what what is it there is in your life that needs to be confessed. It, It will help to prayerfully ask God for clear thoughts and genuine repentance. But if you find yourself unable to identify a particular sin to admit to, a particular sin to turn from in your life, well, don't stress. God is not in the habit of playing guessing games with us. Trust Him to use your struggle for your good. Maybe that this setback and struggle has nothing to do with 
a particular sin. But that said, don't skip over the setbacks and sicknesses either. That's our danger, isn't it? Uh, We hear that it's not necessarily connected, so we assume it's never connected. I'm guessing the Christians in Corinth were doing that before Paul wrote to them. Uh, They thought they were some of Jesus' best and brightest believers. But they weren't. They didn't see it. But among other things, they'd been dishonoring Christ by treating fellow members of his body with dishonor when they shared, or really when they didn't share, the Lord's Supper. Paul writes, uh, 1 Corinthians, verses 30 to 32, That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. He explains, if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. See, they'd been stubborn old mules. They'd been fighting long and hard against God when he spoke to them. They'd been refusing to change when he disciplined them. Super spiritual in their own eyes. Unrighteous rebels in God's eyes. In danger of resisting him to the point of condemnation. Paul's saying, admit your sin. Turn from it while you still can. Turn back to God when he disciplines you so that you won't be judged in the end. Don't put your head down and ignore God's wake-up calls. Because Psalm 32 verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. The last thing you want to do is to be among the wicked when the tsunami of God's judgment falls. Be one of the ones shouting and rejoicing in deliverance. Be one of God's committed, loyal, faithful, steadfast people who he surrounds with his committed, loyal, faithful, steadfast love. Go along with God. Abandon the deceit of pretending to yourself or to him that you have nothing to confess. Uncover your sin by admitting it to to God. Look to him for forgiveness. Know that even though we may delay in coming to him for forgiveness, he does not delay to forgive. He doesn't keep the distance from us once we've admitted our failed attempt to cover our sin. He covers it. He takes it away. He doesn't count it against us. So verse 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. David speaks... He speaks to people he describes as righteous and upright at heart, but it's obvious he doesn't mean people who have never sinned. He doesn't mean perfect people. He means forgiven people. People whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, though he could. 
He, gets, he speaks to people who have got over the idea of hiding their sin from themselves and God. People who have admitted their sin, who have not covered their iniquity, who have confessed their transgression. And he says, see how good it is. See how good God is. Be glad in the Lord who forgives generously. Rejoice in God who covered your sin. Shout for joy in the presence of all the others who God has also forgiven. Now, there is an edge of warning in this psalm. David describes his stubborn delay, his physical and emotional distress while he held out against God and God's mighty hand pushed down on him. He says to us, as we live our lives, we have two choices. There's no third option. We can hide our sin and stubbornly refuse to admit it while God disciplines us until God judges us. We can admit our sin and find forgiveness. So don't resist the Lord's loving discipline. Do humble yourself before the Lord, admit your sin, and find forgiveness. David teaches in that direction, but he doesn't just teach in that direction, he prays. He asks God to make people pray. Think about that in the context of how David, God made David pray. He caused David physical and emotional distress that wore him down until finally he admitted his sin. We can feel helpless when we aim to influence others. We are helpless because we cannot change their hearts. But the living, true, and holy God can. So pray. Pray for fellow believers and pray for those who don't yet trust. Ask God to make them pray. Ask God to give them humble hearts to admit their sin and find forgiveness. David knows the initiative is God's so he asks God to act. He asks because he knows and has experienced the goodness of forgiveness. When Paul wrote to the, the Christians in Rome about forgiveness, he quoted the first verse and a half of this psalm. Uh, Romans chapter 4, verses 6 to 8 say, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. He gets what he deserves. But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of, of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Not what they deserve. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. When God forgives he removes and covers and no longer counts sins which he could leave and expose and punish. See, the implication is clear. 
The not guilty verdict is not deserved. It's not earned by obedience. It is given as a gift. There's no debt because someone else has paid the debt. There's no punishment because someone else has been punished. The guilty are justified. The guilty are declared righteous because the righteous has been declared unrighteous. The glorious thing is that it's not quite just as if I'd never sinned. Because we remember everyone who is declared righteous knows they don't deserve it. Hence verse 11. That's why there's so much joy and rejoicing and gladness. Self-righteous Pharisees, they have no joy, no rejoicing or gladness around God's forgiveness. Partly because they aren't forgiven, but mostly because they don't even think they need to be forgiven. Like the older brother in Jesus' parable, they're thinking they've lived well and God in heaven owes them a good life and a better eternity. It's the returning prodigals who rejoice. They know they're forgiven. They know they don't deserve to be forgiven. Forgiveness is not getting what you deserve. They're glad they won't be getting what they deserve. They're thankful to God who generously forgives all who come to him in Christ. They're thankful to God whose hand pressed heavily upon them until their stubborn hearts willingly and freely turned in trust. That's the experience that responds to hearing David say verse 11 with genuine joy, with heartfelt rejoicing, with deeply felt reasons to shout for joy. Let's pray. Father, please do cause us and our friends to admit our sin, to not cover our iniquity, to confess our transgressions while there is still time to repent and to find forgiveness in the Lord Jesus. Please give us the joy of recognizing our rebellion and knowing you don't count it against us. We praise and thank you for your rich mercy and your loving discipline. Through our Lord Jesus. Amen.